0: Good morning. Okay, we are in the second week of a a series that we are calling Story Time. And uh, uh, I grew up in the home of a pastor uh, with a mom who loved the scriptures. And from an early age, she would just open these Old Testament classics and read them to us. And and we would be transported and feel like we were there smelling and and tasting um, the moments in the Old Testament. And... um, As I've gotten older, what I've realized is that those stories were actually more powerful than I was aware of at the time. And uh, even though uh, most of them happened thousands of years ago, they are still full of richness and relevance for our lives today. So we're taking a number of weeks, even as we look forward to Easter, uh, to just talk about some of these stories and unearth some of their richness and relevance. And trust that as we do that, we will fall in love with a central theme that is true in all of the stories, regardless of which one you read in the Old Testament. Uh, This morning, we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. uh, And we're going to look at one of probably the most well-known stories of the Bible. One you may have heard of, a story um, about David and a giant called Goliath. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Um, And uh, even as you turn there, let me just give you a little bit of background, a little bit of backstory to this character named David that we are uh, about to meet. When we are first introduced to David, which happens in 1 uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, David is honestly an, an afterthought. He is so insignificant that he is... An afterthought in his father's own mine. So as the story goes, God uh, wants to replace the king in Israel. He wants to choose a new king and in order to do that, he, he, he taps his human representative, a guy named Samuel, and tells Samuel, I want you to go to the home of a man named Jesse because I'm going to pick one of his sons to be the next king of my people, the people of Israel. So Samuel heads to Jesse's house and when he gets there, Jesse, as a proud father, parades his boys in front of Samuel. These beautiful, buff, bacheloresque type of boys are paraded in front of Samuel. It doesn't take Samuel too long to realize that it is none of these guys. Are you sure you don't have another son? And almost as an afterthought, and almost as though slightly embarrassed, Jesse says, well, I guess technically I have one but trust me, he's an unsophisticated chap. It could not be him by any stretch whatsoever. He's a. <laughs> he's a shepherd. He is the designated family sheep sitter. So he's stinky and is out there somewhere. Do you want to maybe see my boys again one more time? Because it, it must be one of them. And eventually it becomes very clear that God's choice to shepherd his people is a stinky shepherd boy named. David. Through a series of sovereign events, uh, David ends up working for Saul. He ends up in this unpaid internship, working for the king that he's soon to replace. One of David's responsibilities was to help carry um, Saul's You know, battle gear when they went out to war, which I think is so strategic of our God. So David went trip after trip to the battlefield with a king where I wonder if he didn't get to study the art of war. Because wouldn't you know it, he would eventually become the single most brilliant military mind, arguably, in all of history. So as the arrangement went, David would spend part of his time serving King Saul and part of his time serving his dad. So he would split his time between Saul and the sheep. Back and forth he would go. And that's the situation in David's life when we jump into the story in First Samuel chapter 17. So uh, we'll start at verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, now the Philistines gathered their forces, for war, and assembled at Socol in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes-Demim between Socol and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley of Elah. Between them. Um, Okay. So the Israelites. Who are um, not fans of the Philistines. In fact, the Philistines at that time were the Israelites' greatest foe. The Philistines loved the piece of property that Israel sat on. It was up on a hill that was strategically advantageous for the Philistines. So the Philistines decided, we want your property. So we're going to assemble an army and we're going to march through the valley and up the hill and we're going to take your land. Now word gets to King Saul in Israel. He hears about this and he has enough time to scramble, gather a little army and head down the hill. And so while the Philistines are coming down one hill, the Israelites come down the other hill, and they both camp kind of part way down their respective hills with the valley of Elah between them. Now the Philistines have a problem because the Philistines wanted to take that land, but the Israelites are on the hill. So if the Philistines decide we're going to cross this valley and we're going to come up this hill and we're going to take the land, the Israelites would have time to finish their tea, watch Netflix, and kill the Philistines while they're trying to make their way up there because they'll be on the elevated plain. You never want to try and attack going Upwards. So what ended up happening was the Philistines stayed on their end and the Israelites stayed on their end in what turned out to be a standoff in which they just kind of stared at each other for a little while. Um, eventually, the Philistines came up with a plan to kind of get some movement going. Uh, look at verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Let's do this. Choose a man and have him come down to me. And if he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Verse 10, then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Oh man, things are heating up. So this guy named Goliath steps into the valley of Elah and he makes a proposal. Hey, instead of staring at each other in this ridiculous standoff, how about we do this? I'll stand as a representative of our superior Philistine nation. And and then you guys can send one of your JV Boy Scouts to stand as a representative for your pathetic Israelite nation. And we fight. If your guy wins, we become your slaves. We become your subjects. We bow down to you. But (laughs) when I win, just say it. You all become our subjects, you all become our slaves, and we get that strategically advantageous piece of territory that you all live on. No need for massive bloodshed. Mano y mano, winner takes all. Okay, sounds like a a fine proposal. Um, except for the fact um, that the guy making the proposal, he's a giant! (laughs) That matters. He is a giant. Conservative historians um, get into a feud about the actual size, the height of Goliath. But the conservative historians would say, Goliath was probably six foot, nine inches tall. So, about an inch taller than LeBron James. But in either case, he would have been severely oversized compared to the average Israelite soldier. But it is more likely that Goliath (laughs) stood nine feet, nine inches tall. Like that. (laughs) Which means I couldn't reach up and wipe his nose if he ever needed me to do that for him. Which establishes a bit of a complex in me. Which means I'd have stood like at, like butt height compared to (laughs) Goliath, which gives me an even worse complex. Nine foot, nine inches tall. This monstrosity of a human being. And on top of that, it says that he wore a vest of armor that weighed 126 pounds. He is hauling around the weight of an average human being on him. And then it says he had a spear. And the tip of the spear weighed about 15 pounds. Forget being stabbed by that sucker. He would kill me if he hit me with it over the head. (laughs) And then he has a full time guy whose job is to carry his shield in front of him and to help guide him into the battlefield. I'm just saying that's a little scary to me. I'm gonna leave this right down here just for some perspective um, for the rest of our time together. Nine foot nine inches tall. That's scary, that's crazy, that is concerning. So anyway, Lurch is inviting the Israelites to send out their toughest guy to take him on. And I'm just saying, if I'm Israel's military consultant I'm advising them with a strong, nope, a solid negative on this proposal. You know, that's like going to Lincoln Elementary School and saying, listen, kids, here's the deal. You send out your best basketball player and uh, he gets to play one-on-one against LeBron James. Now, both of them are babies, but LeBron James at least is bigger and has more experience. But they go... Just saying, this is, we just preach truth here. So, but you get to play him one on one. And here's the deal if your little sixth grade girl beats LeBron James, then all of Lincoln Elementary School students get to divvy up the collective salaries of all of the NBA players. But if LeBron James happens to beat this little sixth grade girl, then all of you stay in the grade you're in now forever and ever and ever and ever. And the teachers stay in the grades they are teaching right now forever and ever, no spring break included. (laughs) I'm just saying if I'm, you know, part of the general counsel uh, to the Lincoln Elementary School administration, I would advise a solid no on that particular crazy proposal. Um, Not only is this a terrifying thought, dying at the hands of this monster, but there's the added pressure of everyone's fate being in your hands if you lose. Look at verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, this is profound scripture. Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Which, in my theology is just smart. That's a smart move. There is a time to pee pee your pants in fear and when a nine foot nine giant is calling you out to do the tango of death that qualifies as such an occasion if you ask me. And so, for forty days they 're in this standoff, and that 's exactly what happened. The giant would come out every single day, and he would just mock their manhood, and he would just mock their people, and he would just mock their God. and they did the smart thing, kept their mouths shut, and hid, just hoped he would get eventually tired of mocking them, and the Philistines would go away. The Israelites make no mistake about it. Will Utterly humiliated, but silver lining, they were also alive. Great question, though. Where's David? I mean, this story is kind of about him. Where is David? Great question. But remember how David was splitting his time between Saul and the sheep. This happened to be one of those um, battle occasions which kind of conflicted with a prior engagement of David's calendar um, to shepherd. And so he wasn't there on this particular occasion. He had no idea what had been going on um, to this point. That was until his dad asked him to run an errand for his brothers who were in this embarrassing standoff. Look at verse 17. Let's jump down a few verses. Now, Jesse said to his son, David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring me back some assurance from them because it's been a while. Verse 19, they are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. (laughs) <laughs> um, this is funny to me. You know when people think what you do is actually more impressive than it really is? That's kind of the situation, right? My boys, the fighting, soldiers, warriors, I tell you, says dad. Little does he know. So take them some treats, David. Um, they'll need the strength. You know how you know, running and hiding can work up an appetite. So anyway... David, who's probably in his late teens at this particular time, ends up in the epicenter of one of the most incredible stories in history. Because his dad asked him to do him a favor on behalf of his brothers. I'm just saying, public service announcement. Kids, obey your parents and you will likely end up in a pretty epic story. Just saying. parents. You're welcome. Happy spring break. (laughs) Verse 20. Early in the morning, David left his flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies. He ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from the lines and he shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Again, I don't want to minimize the despair, but I can't help but notice some of the humor in this story. I mean, come on. I love how um, the Israelites would still insist on going through the daily ritual of marching to the battle lines and chanting their war cry bravely as they went. We believe that we will win. We believe that we will win. We believe Goliath is coming. Sake! And they're out. But they still insisted on this war cry every morning for 40 days. That is hilarious to me. But credits to them because they had the battle cry. Down to a cadence. Sadly, that reminds me a little bit too often of, of the church. If I can just pause and say that for a quick second, because you know we have our worship songs and our battle cries on Sunday down to a cadence week after week. We, we, we shout, the resurrected king is, is resurrecting me. And, and we're going to take those. And then Monday comes and we're like, psych, don't ask me to invite anybody to Jesus or to invite them to church. But anyway, these cowards, <laughs> let's, let's laugh at them. These guys, are, they're crazy. But poetically, David arrives on the battlefield right at the same time as Goliath emerges. Verse 25. Now, the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Oh, this is good. Uh, Saul has got so desperate uh, that he's offering his daughter to anyone who would take on the giant because this is just humiliating. Um... Obviously, Saul's daughter is not even that cute because um, 40 days and no takers. Um, even with a lifetime of no taxes included, the dudes are like, Mm-mm-mm. no, sir. So needless to say, her self-esteem is high, super high. Verse 26, David asked the man standing near him, "Ah, tell me that again. What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? And then he asks, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David hears Goliath's words. And he doesn't experience fear. He is fired up. And I love what he says. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Now, I don't know if it's circumcised or uncircumcised, but I do know he's nine foot nine. David doesn't even seem to bother making a commentary on that issue. He is just so absolutely fired up by the fact that somebody would dare to defy the armies of the living God. Verse 31, what David said, was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. Right? So for 40 days, everyone in the army you know, was so terrified of this giant that even the slightest expression of interest in the king's offer gets back to Saul immediately. Sir, we might have a taker. So they bring David to Saul. And this is what David says in verse 32. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine." Your servant will go and fight him. 17-ish years old. He just got here with some cheez And he wants to fight the giant talking about, I got this. Powerful. And every generation has a remnant of David's. Every generation has a small minority of men and women who are willing to run towards what everyone else is running from. Men and women of courage. This story uh, is about a number of different things, but w- one of the things it is at least about is courage. Our uh, courage is the idea of being willing to take a risk fueled by a calling. So willingness to take a risk fueled by. A calling. Courage. It's believing something so deeply that it defies fear. And I'm willing to go after it even at great risk. Courage. When the weight of the thing I'm called to is greater than the weight of the thing I'm afraid of. Courage. When the fire of conviction burns more fierce than the fear of consequence. Courage. The world is marked and changed by people like this. And we've seen it. We saw it on 9-11 when everyone else was fleeing from the scene. You had a group of service men and women running in the direction of the devastation and the destruction because of a deep conviction that protecting and serving the lives of others weighed more than preserving and saving my own life. Courage. Every generation has a few people like this. We have a few people like this in business who are willing to go against the flow in directions that could absolutely undo them but they believe something so deeply and they go after it every generation as a group like this in friendship who are willing to pursue and willing to enter in even though it risks wounds and it risks rejection courage we see it in sports where there's a small group of people even at the most elite level who are willing to go all in and take the great shots and take the highest risks because they believe and are driven by something deep within and that's true in the church that I believe something so much I'm willing to go all in even if I lose it all and again the world is changed by people like this and so even though he was the ultimate underdog with the odds stacked heavily against him even though there is no way he should have been volunteering for this suicide mission courage. David believed something so deeply about the honor of his God that no giant had the right to defy. And I don't care what you may or may not do to me. I believe the name of our God is sacred and his people are sacred. And whatever it costs, I am stepping in. That's courage. David believed so deeply that the people of God ought to be helped. That he was willing to put his own safety aside. Please, let me make this philistine stop talking. Please. Tax exemption and, you know, little princess bride, a uh, nice side bonus. But please let me silence this fool who dishonors my God by dishonoring his. People. Every generation has a remnant of the courageous who just deeply buy in and believe God's call to honor his name and to help his people. And our prayer is that this church would be filled with a remnant like that. Risk and all. And David was that guy in his time. How about you? What do you believe that? Deeply. What will make you risk what everyone else clings to? What will make you run in the direction of what everyone else is running away from? What would you risk to honor the name of your God? To help the people that he cares about? Are you part of the courageous few? I mean, will your life record any moment where you were willing to lose it all for something God called you to? This world will be changed by the courageous. Verse 33, Saul replied, "Uh, Yeah, yeah, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him because you are only a young man. And he has been a warrior from his youth. He has been killing people since you were a baby. This is not a good idea. David insists, courage. David insists, nonetheless, and he starts to give Saul some of his resume of courage. Man, I want to meet this guy in heaven. Top five. Look at verse 34. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep, which again, not a strong start, but he goes on. When a lion or a bear, okay, let me read that again. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. (laughs) Wait a minute. You're telling me a lion or a bear, grab a sheep. And you run after it. I'm just telling you right now, I would be that shepherd that's like, sometimes lions eat sheep. (laughs) It's the circle of life, son. But David was a different breed of human being. He goes after the lion. But it gets even crazier than that. I struck the lion, which means you have to be pretty close to that thing. And I rescued the sheep from its mouth. That's crazy. Anyway, so when the lion turned on me, I seized that thing by its beard. Poop, popped it, and killed it. I'm telling you, I want to meet this kid. That's unbelievable courage. You were telling me you grabbed the lion by his beard and killed it after you took the sheep. And the lion is like, okay, well, if I'm not gonna have the sheep, I'm gonna have you. But lion's gonna eat and it's gonna be one of the two of you. And David said, I'll kill the lion. In close combat. That's crazy to me. Verse 36. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. I have experienced killing killers, but more importantly, the God of angel armies will be with me. Look at the second part of verse 37. Saul um, said to David, "Mm, all right, go and the Lord be with you. I don't think it's a great idea, but it's frankly the best idea we've heard. So sign this waiver (laughs) so that when you die, you know. Uh, But good luck, Godspeed. Bless your heart. Please don't lose, because we'll be hosed on that account. By the way, um, at this point in the story, I just want to, again, file my grievance and say I'm still a strong no on this situation. Um, I would be like, the girl's not worth it, man. Pay your taxes and then live. Dude going not kill you. But regardless of what I think, apparently, this thing is so very on. So let me read what happens next. Verse 38 then Saul dressed David in his own tunic he put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them ah, I can't go in these he said to Saul because I'm not used to them so he took them off then he took his staff in his hand just the wooden stick he chose five smooth stones from the stream put them in a pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer and his guide in front of him, kept coming closer to David. This is happening. Again, I just want to go on record and say, not good. A stick versus a heavy spear, not good. Slingshot versus a sword, not good. Five stones versus a 126-pound suit, not good. A teen versus a 10-footer, again, not good. But the two are heading in each other's direction. Nonetheless, verse 42. Goliath looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. Okay. Okay. Again, I don't mean to stop the intensity of this moment, but does anybody else find this a tad petty? I mean, this is the moment when Goliath is going to go all middle school girl on David. Like you are younger and better looking than me. I hate you. Like all right, all right. And, and then Goliath gets mad at David's age and his artillery. Very sensitive, this big guy, um, apparently. Verse 43, he said to David, what, 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 What? am I a dog? That you come at me with sticks? Don't you know who I am? I'm important. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And then he says to him, verse 44, come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And then to be fair and to be polite, so that Goliath is not surprised, David tells the giant exactly what he's about to do to him. Look at verse... um, 46. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. Here's what I'm going to do. I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the rest of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild beasts, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 47. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands I love that it was never really about a teenager and a 10 footer it was always about my god and your god And even though the odds may be severely stacked against me, God has a way of tipping the scales. The God of armies will be with me. And then in the most impressive fashion, watch how this confrontation ends. Verse 48. As a Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. (laughs) Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword In his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. The giant came tumbling down. And then I love how the Bible kind of rubs it in, almost like a little holy trash talk going on. Oh yeah, remember how David didn't even have a sword, uh, didn't have a shield, like he had nothing, just a sling and a stone. And that's all it took to take down the giant Goliath is out verse 51 David ran and stood over him took a hold of the Philistine's sword drew it from the sheath after he killed him he cut off his head with a sword you know to be a man of his word because he said he would when the Philistines saw that the hero was dead they turned and ran by the way when the Philistine army starts to run off That's when the Israelite army, infused with a fresh dose of courage, go charging after them. Come back here, you know. Um, And in this newfound courage at the sight of the Philistine hero on the ground, the Israelites chase and strike down the Philistines. And needless to say, their carcasses are fed to the, well, it doesn't end well for the Philistines when it's all said and done. The end. Oh, man, as kids, we love these stories. And now as an adult, I love these stories even more. That is such a powerful story of courage, such a beautiful story of overcoming the odds in the name of God. Such a great Old Testament classic. But like we've said and will continue to say, the real reason we fall in love with these Old Testament stories is because they are beautiful previews to the ultimate story about the ultimate David named Jesus I mean isn't this story really about a son who ended up on the front lines of a war because his dad asked him to run an errand from heaven to his people. I mean, isn't this story really about a son who honored his father by helping his people? people who, who by the way, had been taunted and tormented for generations and generations and generations by the undefeated heroic giant of sin named death with an undefeated record. I mean, isn't this story about a high-stakes winner-takes-all battle, mano y mano, Jesus representing his people, Taking on death representing the empire of sin. If death wins, then Jesus and all of his people must become subject to death and live in perpetual fear and hopelessness. But (laughs) if Jesus wins, death must become subject to him and it must set free all the captives that it's held who believe in His name. I mean, isn't this about the most courageous act of all? Jesus, for the honor of his father and for the help of his people, willing to risk it all, running towards what everybody else had run from all their lives. Even this foreshadowing Jesus, who armed with nothing more than righteousness and a wooden cross, took steps very deliberately and willingly towards the battle line of Calvary to face off against a giant called death under the sounds of mockery as death taunted him. Come on, you're going to send me one Galilean dude to take me on? Don't you know I've never lost a day in my life? Isn't this story ultimately about the most comprehensive victory ever. Isn't this story about something we're going to celebrate two Sundays from now? Isn't this story about the day when with one stone flung out of the way, Jesus emerged out of the tomb and leveled a deadly blow to death's forehead, rendering it powerless and setting free those who had been held captive to its fear? Isn't this story ultimately about Jesus conquering the giant of death against all odds and then chopping off his head? Because he called it. He predicted exactly what he would do after three days. And isn't this story about a bunch of us in the church who now have a little dose of courage on account of what Jesus has done, and we start to talk trash, talking about "Hello, death! Where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Nana, nana, boo, boo!" Because of what Jesus has done, and now all of a sudden we start to chase down the things that used to oppress us. Ah, you're subject to me now. Fresh dose of courage. Now we start to go after the helpless, on account of our great warrior who has overcome sin and death. Jesus is the ultimate David. But I think this story is more than a story about courage. So it is a story about courage. I, I wonder if this isn't also a story about faith. Courage is a risk that's fueled By calling. Faith, on the other hand, is a risk that's fueled by certainty. Courage says, I don't know how this thing will will, will turn out. I don't know the outcome. But I am so deeply convinced God has called me to it, I'm willing to take the risk. Driven and fueled by a calling. Faith is different. Now, faith has courage to it, but faith says, no, I don't know the details, but I actually do know the outcome. I am actually convinced of the outcome. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. I'm actually convinced. So I know I'll succeed. I mean, courage is is when I run into a building because I'm so deeply convicted and I'm so deeply called to it. I may die in that building. Faith, on the other hand, is a thing I do when I actually know for certain. Now, I'm going to come out of the building just fine. Now, I don't know how many bricks may fall on me. I don't know what may happen. But I know I'm going to emerge from that situation. Courage is what I need when I'm the underdog. Um, you know, contrary to what I've always thought when reading this story, what if it's less a story about courage and more story about faith? Um, let me let me tell you what I mean by that. There's uh, an author, brilliant guy, Malcolm Gladwell, who has shed some interesting light on this. Story. Um, Goliath was conservatively six nine, probably more nine nine. As a giant, he likely had what was called pituitary gigantism, which made him massive. Which made him terrifying. Which made going against him going against the odds. A few other symptoms of this condition. Number one, um, blurry or double vision. Couldn't see really well. Most people who grew that big had trouble seeing. Which makes you wonder if that wasn't why he had a guy who would constantly guide him to help him get around. Which made you wonder if that wasn't why it took him a little while to finally figure out David's age and what David was carrying with him. David had to get so close and then Goliath is like, wait, what? It's you? Yeah, it's taken me like 50 minutes to come down here. Because of blurry vision. Another symptom of this condition was that he would have chronic headaches. Another symptom of this condition um, was the fact that dude was really big, therefore, dude was really slow. If you're hauling that much weight around, plus you're carrying 126 pounds on you, that doesn't bode well for agility. Which makes me wonder if that's not why he's saying, hey, come over here so I can kill you. Let me ask the question again. Who are the odds really stacked against in this confrontation? David was a shepherd boy. Um, He had spent years and years and years watching sheep. Which means he didn't have too much to do except what? except to become super precise with repetitious practice at hitting a target with his slingshot. He could fling a stone with dangerous accuracy. And it is said by historians that the trajectory of one of those stones released from that slingshot would have the same impact as a bullet hitting somebody's head, which is maybe why it sank into his forehead. David can shoot a bullet with precision, which means in one of the truest senses of the phrase, David brought a gun to a knife fight. Let me ask you again. In whose favor were the odds really? The difference is that the rest of the army just didn't think about this long enough. If that dude is that big, he has to catch you to hurt you. David is like, you know, come over here so I can kill you. I'm not coming over there, I'm just going to shoot you from right here. And I'm going to take five stones, and I don't think I'm going to need five. I think I'm only going to need one, but in case four of them fall out, I'm going to take five. And with one shot, David knocks this guy out. Goliath never had a chance. Faith is David being certain from the beginning, that guy can't beat me. I tell this to you, church, just to assure you just in case you ever attempted to get it twisted, when Jesus came to earth as a man, and when he limped up to Calvary carrying that cross, and when it looked like the odds were against him, (laughs) the odds were never in death's favor. The odds were always in Jesus' favor. A, I created Satan, I can take him out. B, I've been living for eternity with nothing to do but practice being awesome and being God. You put me mano y mano against death, I would take death out every time. The problem is that his followers are so scared because they're looking at the wrong things. Jesus was always going to win that battle. Our faith is so solid, we may not know exactly what might happen or how they might kill him or or what they may do with his body, but we know how the story ends. And I tell that to you as a church because if he was victorious, so are you. There is no mystery about how your story ends. Every giant you face in your life, the odds are stacked against it. When that nine-foot-nine addiction shows up and starts to tell you, you have to come to me so I can own you again. You're like, I don't have to come to you. You are subject to me now. Jesus has taken your head off. Your power has been rendered useless. When that gigantic urge to purge or that gigantic urge to cut comes again, you don't have to say yes to it. It has been disarmed. And on top of that, church, why in the world would we live in fear when we have no doubt by faith how our story ends? Why wouldn't I take on any giant God calls me to take on? I'm hemmed between courage of what he's called me to and the certainty that in the end Jesus wins and so do I. So I'm going to go after the lost, I'm going to go after the broken, I'm going to take on any giant, and we as a church are going to be the people that run in the direction that everyone else is running from. Because in faith, the odds are stacked against any weapon that's formed against us. We win in the end. So church, the world is going to be changed by people who live with courage and live by faith, like the great David And even more importantly, like the great Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fuel us by your calling. And we pray you would fuel us with a certainty that you win. You were always going to and you're always going to. And now because we believed in you, those of us who have, we win too. Help us to live with that kind of reckless abandon for the sake of your honor and for the sake of helping people in our world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.